With nearly every success, there is a line of failures and setbacks, sometimes a very long line. Many of those stories get condensed into pithy journeys that minimize the struggle. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azale comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about triumph and disaster that Mark's guests faced and how they overcame the adversity to shine. Now, here's your host, Mark Azale. Hello, everybody. I'm Mark Azale, and welcome to our premiere episode of From the Ashes. In this episode, we're going to be hearing from Mary and Sally, my long-term friend, my work wife, the most credentialed and licensed psychotherapist I know in the entire planet. She's going to be talking about infidelity in relationships, both as a professional and as an ex-cheater herself. But before we dive into that, she's going to interview me a little bit about this podcast. Hi, everyone. Mary and Sally here. So we're going to start um, with the interview of Mark, which is really the best part. So Mark, why did you start this podcast? So I started this podcast to break out of the industry. You know, you and I have talked about how we can only see so many yeah. clients um, and how <laughs> tough this job can actually be. So my goal in the beginning is to actually get more of the information that I know that I've learned out to the population in a, in a you know, format that I use a lot is to a ton of podcasts. I love listening to talk radio. And this is a great way that I think it can reach way, way, way more people than, you know, the 20 or so people that we see in our office. Absolutely. It seems like a wonderful format for you, uh, from what I know about you. Um, what does from the ashes mean? So the idea of from <laughs> the ashes, um, it's stories of recovery, right? Stories of redemption, stories of resurrection. This idea of, you know, getting kicked in the teeth, getting knocked down and having to stand back up. You know, I think a lot of therapists, you and I have had this question a lot of what makes people change? And I think a lot of therapists have this idea that it's like one size fits all. Like, hey, just like do your CBT, do your DBT, meditate, Mm -hmm. exercise, whatever. And that's not true, right? It's like it's different for every person and everybody's path is very unique. So I'm hoping to start to answer that question by really doing a deep dive on individuals to see what helped them get back up so that the listeners can, you know, pick and choose and say, oh, yeah, maybe that would work for me. Oh, wow. I never thought of it that way. Oh, wow. You know, that story is really inspiring. Um, And by presenting a lot of different solutions, I think people can hopefully, you know, get back up from the ashes. Hmm. Yay. (laughs) Well, um, I'm not sure if this is really the question that you wanted me to ask, but I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about your from the ashes story. Yeah. Uh, So the very quick thing, I'm sure I'll come up more through the episode. Yeah. The quick thing is essentially I'm in recovery from drugs, um, from opiate addiction primarily. And, you know, it started back when I was younger. It was a lot of like self-hate, low self-esteem, depression, Um, And it's really wanting, frankly, to kill myself, right, to end my own life. Absolutely. And I found that drug addiction, because I, you know, wasn't courageous enough, I don't know if that's the right word, but I Uh couldn't go through with actually pulling the trigger. Mm -hmm. But drugs were a way that I was actually slowly killing myself and really making myself small, really numbing out my experience, really dissociating from my present. And the lower my self-esteem was, the more I went into drugs because, you know, they made me feel good. I did a lot of hallucinogens and psychedelics. So I was having these like, you know, incredible Mm -hmm. mystical experiences. But in my real life, I was a loser, right? Like I wasn't confident. I was not, didn't have a lot of friends, wasn't well connected, wasn't confident in my life, you know, wasn't succeeding at, at my goals. And 
you know, it wasn't fast forward until an overdose that I got into psychotherapy, that I got into mindfulness, I got into Buddhism, moved out to Colorado, went to Naropa University, which is a Buddhist university, um, met you, you know, um, turned my life around and really started to try to engage in the world as it is rather than as I want it to be. And for yeah. me, that was a really big change of trying to like actively fight for my life and actively engage in the world. It sounds like you're talking a little bit about uh, radical acceptance, and I'm sure that that's something that will uh, come up later on um, in our podcast today. Yeah, I mean, that's such a big part of, you know, seeing myself for where I was at and being like, oh, wow, like, I really can't do X, Y, and Z. Oh, wow, I really am afraid a lot of the time. Like, I carry a lot of anxiety. Oh, my God, I'm so depressed. Oh, my God, like, I have bad eating habits. I mean, really trying to accept, you know, boldly and courageously where I was at, and it was not where I wanted to be, to tell you that much. Mm-mm. No, but here you are now. Here we are now. We're Yay watching a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that you wanted to share before we move on to uh, the guest of the podcast? Uh, you? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think I would just say for those listeners, I would mm-hmm. love to hear from you. You know, if you can, you know, yeah. comment on social media, you can always email me. You can look at our show notes. Um, visit my website. I want this to be the beginning of a conversation. So I'd love to hear if anything stands out from the um, guest. I'd love to hear if you want them back, you know, on a panel. I'd love to hear if you want to be on the podcast as a listener, right? Like this is a startup operation. So we can really do a lot of creative things, especially here in the beginning. Um, Absolutely. So that being said, Marin, you want to tell a little about your From the Ashes story? Oh gosh. Anything you would like to know uh, in particular? Well, you know, you sent me an email saying you want to talk about cheating. So mm-hmm. maybe we should start there. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a um, perhaps surprising thing that someone would want to talk about. But, um, you know, I think that the reason that I wanted to talk about that is because infidelity um, slash cheating was sort of like um, a coping mechanism that I used, much like one might turn to drugs, in order to manage a lot of intolerable feelings that I was having inside of myself. And, um, and in some ways, this is very oversimplified, but rather than sort of um, radically accept the consequences of asserting myself in a relationship, which might mean the end of the relationship, which might mean a lot more conflict around getting my needs met, I would often choose to go outside the relationship to sort of get those um, the feelings of gratification, you know, um, boost in my self-esteem, feeling de- desirable, those kinds of things. So, you know, that's sort of like the, the uh, simplified version of my personal process. Yeah, yeah. Well, can you paint a little more of a picture? Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship that was dissatisfying? You know, what you felt during that, mm-hmm. um, what some of the needs that you had specifically that were unmet? And of course, you know, not to name any names or going into too yeah, much identifying no, no, detail, but we want to hear about your experience in that. Well, um, how did it start? I, let's see, I'll, I'll talk about just sort of in general, and then I'll talk about sort of a, um, a change, and then it's sort of falling back into um, the burning embers of infidelity. So, um, you love know, it. I've had this sort of, uh, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> what did you say? I love it. I love that you're using the uh, marketing, the burning oh, embers and, of infidelity. Uh, yeah, I love the metaphor. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, 
I sort of began using this, um, again, it might be oversimplifying, as sort of a, a way to like work with some intolerable feelings that I was having inside myself. And uh, maybe we can talk a little bit later about, you know, where I feel that those sort of feelings arose within me. But I began to use those um, to manage um, relationships, even, you know, in high school and college, you know, um, I've even done things um, not just necessarily uh, cheating on the people that I was dating, um, but also, you know, um, on occasion hooking up with like my friends, partners and those kinds of things, you know. And um, so this sort of all went along. Um, and then at some point um, I decided um, that and this was after I was divorced, that, you know, I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, I didn't want to um, live my life in such a, um, a dishonest way. And, and I don't really think about it from a moral perspective, but more that I wanted to be free from like all that um, I'd have to manage internally, you know, by sort of holding these secrets. And also I had an idea in my mind that, wait, I don't even actually have to feel this way about myself necessarily, but I continue to enter into relationships that sort of um, that uh, stoke my own sort of uh, fire of, you know, I'm not worthwhile. I'm not enough, those kinds of things. Um, so anyway, um, after I got divorced, I dated someone for a long time. And I said with this person, I am not going to fucking excuse me, uh, radio land, <laughs> you know, um, do that anymore. I'm not going to do it for myself and I'm not going to do it for my partner or my relationship. And instead, I mean, who knew I'm going to like talk about the things that were upsetting me, you know, and heretofore I wasn't really doing that. You know, I would be upset, but I wouldn't, I couldn't really talk about what was actually happening for me. And, um, so, you know, I made that shift. I, I stood by that. And then, um, you know, that relationship ended. And then several years later, I got into um, a long-term relationship that lasted for, you know, 10 to 12 years. And what I found in that relationship that was, um, I couldn't let it go, but it was stoking all the time. It just continued to sort of um, stoke those feelings about myself that I wasn't enough, I wasn't good enough. And um, it was also kind of one of those relationships where we were kind of dating and we were kind of not. And so, again, for me, that sort of kind of not kind of our dating component of it just kept me wanting to, like, sort of get back in there and get my validation from that relationship and from sort of successfully um, having this person, you know, commit to me and um, somehow externally give me the idea that I was worthwhile. and. And then I got myself into a whole lot of trouble. And I really, um, in that particular setting, um, not only did I harm the person that I'd been on and off with for many, many years, but I also really harmed someone that I had started dating um, whenever I was in an off period with this other person. And I really cared about the person I started dating, um, but I was so drawn to the fire, really, of this past relationship that um, I began to cheat on the person I started dating while I was in an off period with the ex-partner, but that ex-partner was coming back, you know, sort of into my um, life. And 
I was just in a weird place where I couldn't let go of the security of the person I was dating, but I also couldn't let go of the fantasy of this other person that I'd been dating for 10 or 12 years. And I know that that's a, a long sort of convoluted story, but um, yeah, I was really, I think maybe for the first time um, in my life, I was able to step outside of my experience of suffering and really feel what uh, my behavior had done to um, two people that I uh, really cared about. And um, yeah, so that's where we are now. So now I've been single for, um, gosh, about three years. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it was like to <laughs> be between those two worlds? When you were having, you know, the ex-partner and the new person. Oh my gosh, yeah. Remember what it felt like? Do you remember what you would think? You know, how how'd you manage two relationships simultaneously? Well, I think that's, you know, I'm just speaking from my experience, but um, I, I do, it feels like in popular culture, sometimes there's a lot of like, oh, you know, you're a terrible person. You're doing this. You're sort of consciously like trying to put one on, uh, put one over on someone. It's very malicious. But my experience was that it didn't feel like that. Um, perhaps, you know, I have my own capacity to sort of dissociate and compartmentalize. But when I was with one of them, I was really with that one. And when I was with the other one, I was really with that one. And so it's not like I was um, mm, sort of consciously um, really trying that hard to hide anything. I would just sort of like be in this sort of uh, relationship. And then I would be in this other relationship and we live in a small town here in Boulder, Colorado. And so, you know, um, of course, at some point that's going to um, get found out, but, um, and I would have some anxieties around doing certain things. I will say that when it sort of was put in my face, like going out to eat with one of the other one, um, I would feel a lot of like, Oh my gosh, am I going to run into somebody else? You know, not even necessarily the other person, but literally somebody that knew um, any member of the party. So that's where most of my like fear of being found out um, came from. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you're talking about that way that, it, you know, it wasn't anything malicious. It wasn't, you know, contrived. It wasn't conscious, but it really is bonding with two people. And it sounds like if I'm hearing you correctly, there was some anxiety, but there's also a lot of confusion. There's a lot of mixed, you know, attraction and desire. It sounds like it was a real knot for you to be in. Yeah, it was a, it was a really big knot. And again, I just want to be clear to the people that are listening that, um, you know, I'm talking about my experience and this in no way um, erases, you know, the, um, the pain that my behavior caused. I just, I want to say that. So, um, but we're focusing on, you know, what it was like for me in this particular podcast. Um, yeah, it was a real bind. And um, one thing that I sort of come into these relationships with and all relationships is a, is a high, high degree of ambivalence. And I think that that's one of the parts of myself that sort of lends itself to being able to sort of hold almost like two sides of something. So um, the other thing that would happen for me is that like, if I felt that one person was sort of pulling away, um, this is going to sound very odd, but if one person was sort of pulling away, the other person really was like less appealing to me. It's like I needed both to feel like I was secure and solid, you know, and it's like I needed to have like a sort of uh, 
always needed sort of a port in the storm. And whoever was pulling away, that's the person that I would sort of lean towards. And so there's a lot of my own like psychology and my own upbringing that I think informed um, that uh, tendency in me. And um, I guess I also want to say that, um, and maybe you can help me uh, understand why I want to say this right now, but I wasn't discovered cheating. I, um, a proposition was made to me by one of the people, one of my partners, you'll, I'll say that. And I wanted to move forward with that proposition. And so I shared um, that I had been dating this other person for some time. And, um, and then I had to tell the other person that I was doing that. But even in the telling of the other person, I was so frightened that I was going to lose, ever, lose everything that it was very difficult for me to just cut it off completely. Mm-hmm. That's really great. I want to hear a lot more about the ambivalence and a lot more about that moment. But first, you have to go to a commercial break. Okay. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are the experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azoulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azoulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Our thoughts and feelings not only affect our own lives, but the lives of everyone around us. Find new meanings of love, authentic expressions, and better connections with the people in your life. Tune in to Love Light with Dr. Jean Marie Farish. This program will feature guests and discuss ideas that will bring a better life to you. When you find this perspective on love, it will change everything. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 
or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now back to From the Ashes. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're here with Mary and Sally. In the first part, we heard about her story of cheating um, and how she was juggling ambivalence, juggling desire, juggling attraction. And in this segment, we're going to go a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more about what it was like for her in that situation. So, Marion, can you tell us about ambivalence? I know it's a favorite topic of yours. <laughs> well, um, sure, I can tell you about I can tell you about my ambivalence. Love to hear you know, about it. I think that, um, and this might feel like a little bit of psycho mumbo jumbo to people, but you know, uh, my experience is that the ambivalence. Um, uh, is and sort of was a way for me to sort of like create a sense of security in my life and and to sort of not give up any possibility um, because um, I had the experience growing up that I had several fathers and um, by several, I mean four, I think. <laughs> and um, and I want to say I have such a lovely, lovely father now. And I he's been my father since I was 14. Um, but it took me a very long time to become attached to him because the, the prior fathers, you know, um, basically dipped out of my life in some way and or were sort of overtly critical of me um, as, you know, uh, a female and a young woman. So I think that, um, the ambivalence allowed me to sort of like, you know, keep my eye open to some other possibility, but while not quite losing the little bit of a breadcrumb that I had on one side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It does. Well, what I'm hearing is that if you can stay in that like place of ambivalence, place of maybe. Yes. Right. Then at least it's not a no. Yeah. Right. At least it's not a rejection. There's not a sense of rejection. And there's also not a sense of, um, I made a choice that, uh, messed up my own life in a way, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. There's not a sense of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, what I was sort of grasping at whenever I, uh, I told you about that first choice I made for myself, that I'm not going to cheat. I'm just going to like, you know, meet whatever consequences there are. I was really working towards a sense of freedom that comes from being responsible for the choices that you make. And um, that's not to say that, you know, people don't have uh, limited options. That's not what this is about. But in my um, situation, um, I could make choices um, to sort of radically accept the relationship that I was in and radically accept the consequences of leaving that relationship um, and moving on to something that, you know, maybe was a better fit for me. So, and so what happened in my, um, that longer term relationship that I talked about was I spent a lot of time in the context of the relationship working and chewing on that. Like I feel ambivalent and also I want to like be responsible for my life. But this person sort of um, in my mind offered a sense of security. It was a false sense of security, but because they represented something to me, I kept leaning into that. And so, um, yeah, you know, got myself into a whole mess of trouble. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, the taking responsibility for your life thing really stands out for me. I remember, yeah. you know, that moment in my life. And I remember actually yeah. it being incredibly painful and having yes. a lot of grief around it. Yeah. Because 
you know, I was a pretty entitled kid, I think. I don't know if I was aware of how entitled I was until I got into the world and I, you know, blew my own life up. Mm-hmm. But I remember really consciously, you know, saying in therapy and crying about how nobody owes me anything, right? The world doesn't yeah. owe me happiness, doesn't owe mm-hmm. me safety, doesn't owe me security, doesn't mm-hmm. owe me anything. Mm-hmm. And that anything that I wanted to create, I had to create by myself. Yeah. And there was that relief that you were talking about. And for me, there was also this really deep loneliness, this real yeah. loneliness of being like, oh my God, like, you know, it's not like it's just me against the world, but Mm-mm. the things that are going to matter are <laughs> going to have to come from me. Yeah. And even if I want support, like I have to make that support. It's not just going <laughs> to appear out of nowhere. You have you to know? ask for it. Yeah, I got yeah, to ask for it. I got to find people. I got to okay. nurture relationships, right? I have to rely on them when the going gets tough. You know, yeah. the buck stops here. Exactly. Yeah, I think um, to sort of piggyback on that, it's not, for me, it's not so much about doing it by myself, because I think that would also, that would really negate the support that I've had in my life and other members of my family um, and my friends and also some very good relationships that I've had. But there's a sense of, I can't look for my life to be different or happier or um, uh, uh, any of those sort of positive adjectives, you know, from one other person. I have to like look within myself to do that. And it sounds again, like some sort of like maybe self-help or psycho mumbo jumbo, but um, it feels so true. And it's so freeing, painful, hard as hell, but freeing. Yeah. So so what was your process of looking into yourself? What helped you to start to have self-love? Well, therapy. (laughs) Pretty good one. Yeah. Pretty good one. Um, and I like it that you say process because it wasn't easy, you know. Um, and I don't always feel fully like in love with myself, but um, I find that, you know, I'm an all right person and I'm more able to tolerate at this point if someone else doesn't feel that way, which that was part of it before. I couldn't really tolerate any rejection or abandonment, if you will. Um, so a lot of therapy, group therapy was one of the most important things for me as far as a therapeutic aspect goes, um, because I got to really see how um, other people perceived me, how I perceived other people, and sort of experiment with that in real time, but um, in, a, in relative safety, you know. Um, and I think I was also really driven to find a different way to be in the world within myself because I have two grown daughters and I didn't want them to have to um, sort of carry that forward into their lives. That sense of, I need to find my um, uh, validation from something outside of myself. I'm wondering, do you have a story from a group that you were in that you got to really play with this perspective thing that you're talking about? Well, I uh, unfortunately probably can't give you a particular solid event. But what I can say is that when I started doing um, group work, primarily at the Center for Group Studies in New York, um, I was just a mess. But I loved it because they let me be all pissed off, you know. Um, I know. I was there for that. You were there. People were mad at me. I was mad at them. Um, I had to tolerate all of my social anxiety coming up and still trying to speak. Um, 
And then finding over time that, oh, not everybody pieced out, you know, I could have some of that. And, and having some of that uh, tolerance then allowed me to be able to tolerate some of the intolerable feelings within myself. And I think there was sort of that, that exposure component. I just kept showing up. I definitely am a shower upper, you know, speaking of fire, I'll throw myself into the fire. Sometimes I get burned down, but, um, but, you know, it's important, I think, to continue to like, take those steps, take those risks. And you sort of do come out the other side, a Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. I remember when we were in some CGS groups, you know, towards the beginning of our time together, you know, we would just sit, you know, next to each other or, you know, across so we could make eye contact. And I would just look at you and I could see the emotions in you. I could see like how you're like, you're like vibrating, right? Yeah. 100%. Right. And then like, you know, usually by the end, like there's like two minutes left, you're like, Right? And like, it's just like flamethrower, like scorch, burn somebody down with all right. your judgments of them, all yes. your thoughts, right? Yes. Like, you know, the anxieties you were feeling, like it was just like a tidal wave of mm. like, you know, emotion that would come at yeah. somebody. Yeah. And I think that part of that was, you know, I had sort of felt like I was on the receiving end of a lot of that in life. And I don't really think I sort of have a like, you know, a poor me mentality, which I don't think there's anything wrong with having that, but that just wasn't the place that I went. I was more just like, fuck everybody, you know? Um, and so because I had sort of felt like I'd gotten that and I needed a little bit of time to just like, yeah, puke all that out there, you know, and um, be like a dragon and shoot flames out of my mouth. <laughs> but really what it was covering up for me was a deep, deep sense of, you know, not being lovable. You know, how could I love someone else if I couldn't even feel lovable myself? And the thing that the group really did for me, um, that whole group process, which was over the course of three years, was I could really actually get in touch with some feelings of allowing myself to just express a warmth towards another person, but in a very vulnerable, unprotected way. I don't want to come off as, I would say that most of my friends think I'm pretty friendly. People think I'm friendly in the world or else they think I'm kind of aloof. So I sort of sometimes give off those two different things. But, um, and people think I'm really sweet. But what they don't get is whenever I'm like in an intimate relationship, you know, that I get so scared, so scared. And I think maybe that's nice for listeners to hear is just, it's the fear and really terror of being left alone without anything or anyone that was driving these sort of weird behaviors or these yeah. unhelpful behaviors. Yeah. Can you say more about that, Tara? I think that's a really important piece. Well, I don't want to get too like uh, clinical here, but um, you know how I understand it um, from a historical perspective, my own developmental perspective is that it's really hard when the person that's supposed to take care of you, you don't even have words as a kid around someone's supposed to take care of me. It's just, you just embody that because that's how we survive in the world is through um, as humans and as mammals in particular, you know, by having like this nurturing caregiver that holds us in mind and has our best interests in mind. Um, that's how we survive. And if we have that, then we can relax and do our exploration. We don't need ambivalence. We can just explore, but you know, my experience was that uh, 
folks sort of kept abandoning me and leaving me and then sort of outright saying that I wasn't good enough at other times. And so I was both inside of myself trying to um, manage the fear of being left completely because then I would die. You know, I don't think that's an overstatement. There's some fear of annihilation there. That's terrorizing for like um, a kid and, and it just stays with you as you move into adulthood. And um, so I was sort of working with that while simultaneously trying to find the thing that would give me a sense of safety and security. So I think that's where the, um, the terror and ambivalence sort of um, intersect. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really just touching of how you're talking about how much fear you were in. Mm-hmm. And I think it's such a common experience. You know, I mean, I've been there. I know many of my clients have been there. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes the fear or like you said, the tire, the, the terror, the annihilation anxiety it's so pervasive that we don't even know it's there, which is wild, right? To be like, you think terror, you would know about it. Right. But if you've been swimming in that ocean your whole life, yeah. you can't even detect that that's happening. That's your soup that you've been swimming in for sure, or drinking or whatever, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And sometimes um, both when I'm working with myself, with my own therapist, um, or in groups, or as a professional with my clients, you know, when people say that they're afraid, it's so difficult for them to like, um, even meet the terror that it feels flat and as if it's not really fear. Right. Well, how do people describe it? They'll say simply, you know, I'm afraid, but then there's no affect that's matching that. And for me, that says not that you're not really very, very scared or um, terrified in some sense, but that that feeling is so overwhelming that you can really only touch it slightly intellectually. I actually remember the first time that um, uh, my therapist, Mark Vick, said to me, well, you were terrified as a child. And I was just sort of like, well, that's fucking stupid. Terrified. That's too big of a word for that. But over time, I was really able to sort of feel that fear within myself. And I will say that part of the work at CGS helped that. Absolutely. But I had to get through a lot of anger, which was the way that I like coped with a lot of those uh, fearful um, feelings. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's similar to my process. Like there's anger on top of that. I think underneath that was numbness. So, you know, as a kid, I was really overweight and I would spend a lot of time playing video games and dissociating Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's common and maybe listeners can relate to this, but what I was doing is I was trying to insulate myself, which is one of those little psychobabble words, but I was, you know, literally creating padding, whether that be physical padding or, you know, intellectual padding or emotional padding. So I wasn't feeling anything. You know, I could escape to a fantasy world. I could, right. you know, throw myself into World of Warcraft. I could read a, you know, 2000 page fantasy novel and not be present, not be able to feel right. that terror. Absolutely. Um, when, when you say that padding, I think of that, the word insulation. So we find ways to insulate ourselves against all of these intolerable feelings. And um, over time, the ways that we insulate ourselves may not serve us anymore. Hence, you know, in my case, especially. So um, we have to find other ways to work with the feeling that can be overwhelming. Um, but in order to do that, we need to find other coping mechanisms that don't destroy our life at the same time. So it's not about just like, you know, 
completely ripping the bandaid off and never, um, and suddenly you don't have those feelings of fear. But what you do over time is work with those feelings in a slightly different way, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, I run a lot and um, that helps me to work with all the feelings that arise. Can you tell the listeners how much you run? Because it's pretty impressive. It's well, it, it, it's not that impressive to me, but you know, I've done a 50 K which is like 32 miles and I'm trying to train for a 50 miler, but uh, life has other plans potentially right now. Yeah. yeah. That's impressive. I can't even run for 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, so, <laughs> you're pretty good. You're pretty good on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we all find ways to um, be with ourselves that aren't self-destructive ultimately. Yeah, well, we have to go toward another commercial break, but I would love to hear in our next segment some words of wisdom you would have for some of our listeners, some advice, um, clinical or not, from you know, speaking from experience. Yeah. And this idea of, you know, what helped to pull you out, a little bit about what you're doing now. Um, we're moving more towards, you know, the recovery side, more sure. into the future. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are the experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azale.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azale, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. For teens, by teens, and about teens, tune into the uncensored and unedited discussions with young adults on Express Yourself. Every Sunday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Smart, tenacious teen hosts and reporters from around the country speak up and speak out. Express yourself. Visit the website for the show to find out more at expressyourselfteenradio.com. And check out the show on the Voice America Empowerment Channel every Sunday. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azale. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azale.com. Now back to From the Ashes. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Mark Azoulay, and this is From the Ashes. We are coming into our final segment here with Marion Sally. She's been talking about her childhood. She's been talking about cheating. She's been talking about ambivalence. She's been talking about not wanting to lose it all and take responsibility for her life. It's been a powerful segment so far. In this last segment, we're going to be speaking directly to you, the listener, and you're going to hear from Marion as a professional about what she's done to help herself, how she is moving forward, um, and what you might be able to do if you find yourself in a similar situation. Yeah. Um, You know, as I consider what I do to help myself, it's just a funny question because um, maybe I'm such an analyst, you know, at heart, but I'm like, we're all in the process. So I can't necessarily name one thing and I can't really name why I am the way I am or have the particular tools that I have. I'll just say that because everybody have, has different ways of like meeting their life and moving forward. But I would say that one thing that I have done um, and this podcast is an example is I really have sort of pushed myself and challenged myself to um, be in situations where um, it's likely that I'm going to have a lot of what one might consider negative feedback and potentially a lot of positive feedback and sort of uh, be in a space where I'm having to hold both of those. Because um, for me, what that does, it allows me to say, oh, okay, like some people think I'm okay, some people don't, and that's just fine. And everyone is a mixed bag. And everyone is a mixed bag to one another. Some people I kind of like and some people, you know, I kind of don't like or um, maybe I want to spend more time with than others. And that's all right. And so once I can sort of um, in some ways um, survive those challenges, it just eases my feelings towards myself. And, um, And it also eases the feelings that I have about myself when I have um feelings towards other people. Because one thing that I would also get in the trap of is being like super nice, you know? So, um, and I didn't always feel nice, but I was so afraid to hurt someone else's feelings or say something that someone else didn't want to hear because I couldn't tolerate any of that coming towards me. So um, yeah, my recovery, if you will, you know, has been a process of just radically accepting that, you know, some people are into me and some people aren't. And, and, um, and then there's sort of the, um, the mix of that, that even someone that you love, that you love, and someone that loves you can also be disappointed in you, mad at you, and you can be mad at them and disappointed in them and all the other myriad uh, experiences that one has in relationships. So. That's a really good advice, right? You know, as a, 
also struggle there of like, you know, nice guy syndrome. I had the same thing of trying to people please. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me, it really, just like you said, came from deep insecurity. You know, Um, I think ours is a little bit different. You know, yours, it seems like you wanted to be connected with people. For me, it was actually a way to push people away. Like the nice guy thing was a veneer for me of not (laughs) wanting to get close. Yeah. Right. Like not wanting to be intimate with people, um, being afraid of intimacy. Um, I think ultimately, because I didn't want to lose somebody or didn't want to appear weak or appear needy. Um, but there's this idea of not being beholden to the people's opinions. Yeah. Yeah. And I was sort of on the other end of that where I would be totally beholden to other people's opinions and lose myself completely in that, you know? Um, we talk a lot about like, uh, we meaning just people and people in the profession and um, parents and developmental folks about uh, dependence and independence. And then it's more now uh, we think of it as an, an interdependence where we both, um, we're not fully on our own and we're not fully subsumed by another, but, but we're allowed to be in relationship and both have needs of others and um, have times when we want distance from others. And we sort of um, can sort of flow in that space of interdependence rather than sort of vacillating from one to the other, which, you know, uh, when you talk about ambivalence, that's kind of what that is too. But, you know, the thing is you're always just pinging back and forth um, and you can never really settle. When I think a main part in that, you know, you talked about therapy and specifically group therapy, a big part that I try to work on, you know, with my clients and in my life, which is, a process, you know, to say the least, is communication. Yeah. Absolutely. What I'm hearing, right, to go from ambivalence, yeah. which is vacillating, to interdependence, which is also vacillating, but at yes. least you're talking about the vacillation. Yeah. Like, that's a really <laughs> key point, right? To actually, you're like, it. Yes. yeah, and you're letting the other person know that you're vacillating because if yes. you don't give them that feedback, then they're going to get in their own head about it, right? They might think they did something wrong. They might, you know, chase yeah. after you. They might, you know, disconnect from you. They might get angry. I mean, there's a you know, myriad of ways that they could react. But with enough communication, people can start to, you know, ride those waves way more effectively. Yeah, that makes me think about one thing I talk to my clients about sometimes is, especially when they get into the place, because I think this is usually how it happens, at least in my case, uh, or, or, you know, people with more of my sort of characterology, uh, if that's a word, is that, you know, you show, <laughs> hey, you know, you show up, um, you know, really nice, you're so accommodating, and all of that. And what you expect is that then that the person's going to be really nice and accommodating to you and give you all these things. But that, but that doesn't really happen. Necessarily. That never happens. That almost that never happens. Never happens. But also, then you're also never allowed to get mad because if when you get mad, the other person's surprised. Well, of course they're surprised because you've been like showing up as another person for the past however long, you know? And, and then sometimes they can't even take it seriously because they've been working with this sort of uh, performative part of you. And if you want for someone to love you for you who you are, you know, you've got to show up as yourself in some way. And again, this... It's not that simple. You know, you don't need to be, if you feel attacking towards your partner all the time, you don't need to attack them all the time. But it's also okay to be like, whoa, I'm feeling that impulse to be attacking. So I'm going to take a little bit of space and maybe we can circle back around. Um, Yeah, communication. It just, I don't know how people sort of survive without it. (laughs) But, you know, 
They yeah, do. I mean, I think they do, and it's awful. You know? It's awful. Yeah, I've met a lot of couples that yeah. don't communicate. That seems really painful, right? But, to be in that place. And I think the other side of that, there's such potentially a fear of communicating. Again, it all gets kind oh, yeah. of messy. You really have to accept, be willing to at least uh, think about the possibility of accepting a consequence that you might not want with that particular partner or relationship in order to sort of show up as yourself. But therein lies the freedom, you know, and the fear around showing up as yourself and still being rejected or abandoned. Ooh, that's oftentimes keeps us in a place of less than ourselves. And we can't, you know, we can't let our freak flag fly because we're so fearful. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a radical acceptance thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the hard truths that I had to learn that I'm associating to as you're talking is that, you know, the performative part of me, even though more often than that, I do actually kind of like that guy, right? I like yeah. when I am nice, when I'm helping people, when I'm supporting people, when I'm being there, you know, that part of me is actually fundamentally dishonest. And that yeah. was a hard truth to accept, right? That even though I like that part, it's very performative and it's, and I'm cutting off other parts of myself to keep that show going. Well, and it sounds like I know that at least I think we have this in common. Sometimes when we do those kinds of things and other people don't show up for us in the way that we expect, then we're all like resentful and mad at them. And then, you oh, know, yeah. Real mad. <laughs> we've, we've had some of those phone calls. <laughs> ah! yeah. yeah. And um, rather than, you know, uh, sort of thinking about our expectations and how realistic they are, or, you know, in some ways being with the other person as the person that they are and getting your need for a particular other kind of like, whether it's a, a feeling or um, just simply someone to do something for you, getting that somewhere else instead of sort of almost burdening one person with meeting all of your needs and, and, and um, all those permutations. So I'm curious if you could talk to somebody that is in the situation that you talked about in the beginning, Mm -hmm. right? They're in two relationships, maybe more, right? They're attracted to both people. You know, they're kind of confused. There's some fear, there's some terror there, and yet they feel trapped, right? Mm -hmm. What would you say to that person? What would you say to them directly if they're listening to this podcast right now? If they're listening to this podcast and we were just going to cut to the chase, you know, I would say as long as you're not in danger, again, there's a lot of privilege in being able to like um, say, I'm not doing this anymore, even for yourself. I would say the best thing that you can do for yourself is be honest with all the players in the relationship because you're first and foremost being honest with yourself. And um, ultimately, that's going to be the thing that's going to free you from um, this sort of trap that you've gotten yourself into. It's not going to be easy. People are going to have a lot of feelings towards you and you're going to tolerate those, you know, but um, that's also part of it and you can tolerate them. I think that's an important part, right? Of saying like, you can, you can do this. It's going to suck. It's going to be hard, but we believe in you. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and maybe 
by having um, someone else believe in you um, in a particular way. And I think that's what's special sort of about the therapeutic relationship. You know, you can begin to sort of um, cultivate that belief in yourself, which maybe you hadn't been able to do before. And, um, you know, you can sort of carry around that person's voice that says, you've got this, you can do this, you're going to get through this, and you're going to come out the other side. And um, you're actually going to be more the person that you would like to be, rather than trying to sort of show up um, uh, in a way that you think other people want you to be. You don't need to be a chameleon, um, potentially, anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's very beautifully said. And I really hope if anyone's listening, um, that that yeah. gets through to you, that that resonates with you. You know, Marion knows how you feel <laughs> and where you've been. Yeah, absolutely. But Mary, yeah. I, I've loved mm-hmm. having you on the podcast. Yay! We do have to wrap up here, but you know, of course, I'd love to have you on for a panel or for another episode. Mm-hmm. Um, we can always we can talk for hours. You know, there's so yes. much I think to cover around a lot of this kind of stuff. Right. Um, we just really tip of the iceberg. Yeah. As as we're wrapping up here, can you let people know where to find you? Um, your website, anything you'd <laughs> like to share, anything you'd like to spotlight? Well, um, you can find me at MarianSally.com. And um, I'm happy to answer any questions that arise from uh, this segment and um, be of help in any way that I can. I also want to let you know that since group was so helpful to me, I'm also happy to be the president of Four Corners Group uh, Psychotherapy Society. And we have a lot of opportunities to um, sort of uh, practice uh, uh, being yourself in a variety of ways within group contexts. So and that is, um, again, uh, fcgps.org. And that's about that's it. fantastic. And as a past yeah. president of that organization, I can say <laughs> it's pretty good. Check it out. Yeah. Uh, it out. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Please uh, follow along at the Voice America website. Uh, check out my website at mark-azulay.com. Follow me on social media, on Twitter. Uh, we're going to try the hashtag thing. So hit me with a hashtag from the ashes if you want to continue the conversation. And I want to hear from you. I want to hear your impact. I want to hear you know, what you thought, if it worked for you, if it didn't work, you know, what you like about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to be on the podcast, let me know too, right? We're going to do uh, be an ongoing conversation around these types of stories. So thank you for joining us for our premiere episode. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay for From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll have another edition of the program then. Meet triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters the same. Until next time... 